Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Adrian Florido. I am a reporter at NPR um, uh, on the Code Switch team, so I report on race and identity and culture. But for the better part of the last uh, two years, I've been sort of on like a special assignment uh, for the national desk reporting on Puerto Rico. And I'm kind of back, like going in transition back, uh, back to Code Switch at the moment. So um, I, was, I was in Puerto Rico covering the protests that, uh, that eventually forced the governor to resign uh, back in July when I got a call from uh, Maya and uh, Isabel asking me to do a session for Third Coast. Uh, and I said, sure. Uh, I wasn't exactly sure what I would talk about, but they had suggested that maybe I... It was interesting because they had sort of mentioned, they said that they had been sort of hearing all of my reporting, especially on Puerto Rico, and were st struck by the fact that, you know, despite it being a story about sort of the aftermath of tragedy, um, my stories seemed not to necessarily fall into these um, sort of narratives uh, of sort of victimhood and helplessness that we often hear after tragedies or traumatic events in communities of color. Um, and I was surprised that they said that, not because that's not something I try to avoid, but because, in fact, I do all the time try to avoid it, but because I feel like often I'm, I'm as unsuccessful at doing that as I am successful at doing it, even though I sort of try to always do that. Um, and that sort of on top of the fact that radio is like this very sort of ephemeral, fleeting sort of medium, uh, you hear it on the radio and then it's kind of gone, although you can, I guess, go look for it online. Um, the fact that they sort of noticed that that was a thing I was trying to do, I thought was cool and sort of affirming. And so why is that important? In the aftermath of traumatic events, tragedies, natural disasters, is when people are at their most vulnerable and are often feeling the most helpless and feeling the most desperate and feeling the most in need of help. Um, and I think as reporters, right, it's easier for us to go into these sorts of situations and report on that sort of top storyline um, being sort of the main thing we're reporting on. Um, and that is important to do. Um, but because I've been doing this for a few years now and have covered so many like dramatic events, especially in communities of color, I think one of the things I've noticed is that the most, you know, as sort of desperate seeming or, or, or sort of uh, tragic as a situation might seem or a person's, a person's situation might seem, there are sort of always these ways that people are trying to sort of maintain a sense of agency, control over their situations, sort of reclaim power that they may have lost or maybe never have had. Um, and I think that it's really important within sort of as reporters that we sort of reflect that um, that we reflect that sort of the, the dynamism of that situation, right? Like that that sort of interplay between pain and power in people's sort of personal lives in the aftermath of these tragedies. 
One, because it makes stories just much more complex and interesting stories, and as reporters and, and storytellers, we're always trying to tell complex stories. Um, but also because when we fail to do that, we often sort of feed into, sort of unintentionally feed into sort of dangerous sort of stereotypes, especially about communities of color, um, that can sometimes be weaponized against them. And so I'm thinking like specifically about this, the case of Puerto Rico right after the storm. A lot of the reporting we were seeing early on, the storylines, the images that were coming out, were these sort of images of helpless people who were in desperate situations needing help. Um, and it was the sort of thing that the president sort of especially grabbed onto in sometimes uh, not explicit and sometimes very explicit ways um, to make sort of these arguments about Puerto Rico being a dependent place that needed everything done for it. Um, and that eventually becoming sort of an undertone of the arguments around why we should keep federal money from flowing into Puerto Rico to help with the recovery um, uh, and stuff like that. And so I guess I'm, like, I'm, not, what I'm, I'm not saying that what we that we need to not report on people's pain and struggles because as reporters, like we need to get those stories out um, because that's often the sort of thing that motivates people who have power to change things, to change things. Um, but that we need to do it in sort of more complex ways and find always ways that people are trying to maintain their own sense of agency control um, uh, within these situations and finding that complexity, right? Like finding those nuances within the story can be difficult. You know, people are in the aftermath of these sort of situations very either desperate to find help or not really thinking about the ways that they themselves are trying to maintain a sense of control. Um, and if they're talking to a reporter are maybe even less likely to be able to articulate those sorts of things. But I think it's important that we like nonetheless really try to find, uh, uh, really try to find them. And so uh, what I'm gonna do today is play sort of a, story, a few examples of stories in which, um, in which I've tried to do that. Um, and, and, but I'm actually gonna start with one where I think I failed to do that, where I know I failed to do that. And so this was after, um, after Hurricane uh, Harvey in Houston, um, I went and had heard about the difficult time that uh, like um, uh, undocumented people were having um, in, in, in recovering and getting help. Uh, and so this was a story that I did. I should note that like most of these stories that you'll hear were sort of on part of the problem, especially if you're a deadline reporter like I am often, is that um, you don't have a lot of time, right? So like almost all these stories that we'll hear were stories that I had to turn around within a day, a day and a half or so, um, except for one, and I'll, I'll tell you which one that is. But, um, but sometimes you just go in and you're looking for stories and you've got to tell, you know, you've got to work with what, you, what you've got. Um, and so this was one of those situations. Um, and so I'll, I'll just play the full thing. In the greater Houston area, there are more than 600,000 immigrants without legal status. That's one out of every 10 Houstonians. Many have lost everything after Hurricane Harvey. Unlike other victims, they don't qualify for help from FEMA. NPR's Adrian Florida reports this is just one reason advocates fear these immigrants may be among the worst off after the storm. Rosa Sosa lives in southwest Houston in a first-floor apartment in a sprawling complex that's home to lots of undocumented families. She lives with her husband, her 24-year-old daughter, and her baby grandson. When the water rose, they fled to a vacant apartment upstairs. When it receded, they returned to find all of their belongings destroyed. The most important thing were the beds, Sosa said. I asked if they'll buy more. 
We could, she says, but who knows when. The family's been sleeping on the floor. Her daughter Roxana says they're out of money because they haven't worked since the storm. We haven't even bought food, her mother says, because we've got to pay the rent. Because they're undocumented, none of the adults in the Sosa family qualify for FEMA assistance. That's true for many thousands of immigrants left with nothing after the storm. The one exception in the Sosa family is Roxana's baby, who was born in the U.S. Even so, the family hasn't registered for help. We're afraid, Rosa says, and that's why we stay like this. It's why, rather than declare our losses, we just stay quiet. I think I'll stop it there. So, I mean, clearly this is a family in like a very difficult situation and it comes off that way, right? I mean, what do you like, what do you, what do you feel about this family? Like, how do you see them? How do, how do you perceive their situation? Um, desperate, helpless, you know, like they're sort of languishing, right? Um, and it was a very sad situation, but one of the things that I sort of was thinking about after I heard it on the radio was like, wow, you know, this, in, in the context of what was happening in that moment is also important, which is that in Texas, right, like this hurricane struck sort of within days of when a, an, a, an anti-immigrant bill that the governor had signed that basically made it illegal for cities to declare themselves sanctuary cities um, was set to take effect. And so, you know, a lot of that sort of um, policy making is often motivated and fueled by these sort of stereotypes and perceptions we have about undocumented immigrants as not contributing, as uh, being um, uh, drains, you know, on like coffers in society, um, and as being in these sorts of languishing sort of situations. And, you know, I sort of was thinking about like, how could have I have made this family's story more complex, more reflective of the reality. And one of the things, I mean, one of the things I didn't include, which I really wish I had, was that Roxana, when she's talking about, you know, being out of work and the family not being, um, uh, not having any money because of that, you know, like I didn't include the detail about they were going, she was nonetheless going out every day to try to find work, try to find ways to make money that this other woman's, um, that Rosa's husband, you know, was going out and like collecting a lot of the debris that was on the streets and finding ways to recycle things, right? Like trying to get their family back on their feet and not just sitting around waiting for things, but doing it in sort of these other ways. Uh, and and so I was disappointed with the story because because of that, right? Because I didn't, it's not like one story is going to necessarily change the minds of people who are already convinced that immigrants are a drain on our society, but this sort of story doesn't help if what we're trying to do is paint more complex pictures of immigrants, doesn't help uh, in any way to change sort of that person's views. Um, and so, um, you know, part of the problem here was that I didn't have a lot of time. Part of the problem was, you know, I think the story, I filed it at like one, we edited it at two, and it aired at five or something like that. You know, so it was kind of like a very quick turn. Um, but if I had sat back for like 10 minutes and thought about, okay, like this, broader structural thing that I'm always trying to avoid, which is to paint people as helpless, um, then, then I could have avoided it. Um, even if it was just slightly, right? If it was just, you know, so much of radio is they're just these little moments, these little nuances, these little sounds, that even if we aren't conscious of the way that they're affecting the way we feel or think about a story, um, they, still, they still are. And so that was an example of a failure on my part. Um, the this, this second story is one where I, was much more conscious going in of this being the sort of complexity that I was trying to paint um, in, in a story, but it was all in part because um, of the sort of the broader sort of stereotypes that we have about the situation. So this is a story about 
Puerto Rico, not about the hurricane, but about sort of the, the financial crisis um, and specifically how it's affecting individuals. And you know, like the, the sort of going in, you know, so one of the most traumatic things that is happening in Puerto Rico right now, even more so, I think I would argue than than the recovery from the hurricane, uh, is the fiscal oversight board that was um, that was um, that was appointed by Congress to essentially take control of the island's finances and uh, and and get the island out of debt and make um, uh, uh, make it basically a, a, a sustainable place economically. The way that it's trying to do that um, is by renegotiating a lot of the billions of dollars of debt that, that Puerto Rico has with, um, with creditors, uh, but also by slashing, you know, just imposing really severe austerity measures um, in all sorts of aspects of public life, especially in the government. Um, uh, and one of the most affected sectors is education, because the University of Puerto Rico and public schools, uh, this public school system are sort of the, among the biggest and most sort of important and expensive institutions in Puerto Rico. Uh, and so um, that is causing a lot of trauma in Puerto Rico, in people's lives, and uh, a place that is already so uh, sort of devastated um, sort of economically is making life even more, even more difficult. Um, and it's not the sort of trauma that you see. It's as easy to sort of get across in, in, in images and, and, and in reporting, right? It's not that sort of desperate post-hurricane um, waiting in lines and people having no power and no electricity. It's more, it's more subtle, and you have to go a little bit deeper to find the stories of how people are being affected by this. You know, you know. Again, a lot of the narrative about Puerto Rico's economic situation is, well, you know, they got themselves into this mess. There's incompetence there. Um, uh, people um, have taken and have been a drain on the U.S. government for so long, um, and now it's time to start cutting back. Um, and and people need to get on their feet and sort of improve their own lot, right? Their own situations. Um, again, feeling all sorts of like nasty stereotypes that we have um, about about Puerto Rico. Um, and so, I wanted to tell a story about the way that um, people were in fact struggling and the way that this trauma manifests itself in people's lives, um, but doing it and tried to do it in a more complex way. And so, what I was trying to do was find a student who uh, was at the University of Puerto Rico who uh, was going to be potentially dropping out because one of the policies implemented by this board was a doubling and then tripling of the cost of tuition at the University of Puerto Rico. You know, tuition compared to tuition here in the United States is not like this astronomical thing, but Puerto Rico is a very poor place overall. And so, you know, doubling the cost of tuition from $750 to $1,500 a year is makes it we, you know, puts it out of reach for a lot of people. And so I had found on Facebook this um, young woman who, you know, as luck would have it, for, from a reporter's point of view, was the very next day, had, had decided that she was dropping out, had gotten all this feedback from her friends and professors on Facebook saying, no, like, you can make this work, you know, come to campus and, like, try to make it pencil out. And so I happened to catch her the night before she was going to go and spend a day on campus going from, like, office to office, working her way through the bureaucracy, to figure out if she could like make the grants and the scholarships and her own money, um, if she could basically afford tuition, and if, if she was going to be able to enroll or have to drop out. Uh, and so she invited me to come and spend the day with her, and so I went to do that. It was the deadline to register at her campus in Arecibo, about an hour away from San Juan. So when we arrived to the campus gates, Leisali greets the security guard. So the, the reason the tone you hear is a little different, I forgot to mention this, uh, is because in this, that first story I was like the radio reporter, right? Uh, and 
the conceit here is that I'm telling the story to Shireen and Jean, the editors, the, the hosts of the podcast. My editors would tell me there's no need to for there to be like I should just always sound this casual, but I haven't like decolonized my mind radio wise yet. <laughs> Who is in the little booth? Buenos días, cómo está, señorito? Qué bueno. She's the kind of student who seems to know everyone on campus, and there's a couple of reasons for that. For one, she's just, like, super involved. But also, last year, when that proposal to increase tuition was just a proposal and had just come out of the oversight board, she spent 65 days camping at the university's gates with other students in protest. And so she knows all the guards on campus. <laughs> Today, though, she's nervous because she is not sure that she is going to be able to make this work, that she's going to be able to find a way to afford her tuition because she's got all kinds of things that need to fall into place. She's got to see that there is a campus job available. She's got to go on a payment plan. And all morning she's been waiting for a call from her mom who was supposed to deposit $100 into her bank account so she could make the first payment, which is due today. Lisa Lee says that ever since her mom lost her factory job, she hasn't been able to help with school costs. But one of her mom's friends saw Lisa Lee's Facebook post and so she passed around a hat to collect money, and that is where the $100 that Les Ali needed to make this first payment, that's where it came from. Nice. And so this phone call from her mom, it's to let Les Ali know that the money is there. So now it's time to go stand in like the seven or eight lines that she's going to have to work her way through just to add her classes. Except that when she gets to the front of the second line to request a printout of a document that she needs to take to another window in order to register for her classes, a document that she's always paid a dollar and some change for, she gets a shock. The man on the other side of the window tells her it'll be five dollars. On top of doubling tuition, the oversight board has tripled the cost of printing documents. This is a piece of paper with ink on it. So Les Salis backs away from the window, and she tells him, oh, never mind. And she's furious, and she storms out of the building into the quad to tell her friends what just happened. And she says, I'm not going to pay those extra few bucks. It's, it's, a, it's the principle of the thing. It's a form of protest, she says. It's, it's pride. Mm, you're so close, though. She says she refuses to continue enriching the rich. And as she says this, one of her friends at the table, Gabriel Soto, who knows that she's really close to graduating, he takes $3 out of his pocket and he sets them on the table and he pushes them over to her. But Lisa Lee, she, she just pushes them right back. This is a decision that a lot of Puerto Ricans on the island are facing more and more. Do you refuse to go along with the changes that this fiscal oversight board is bringing to Puerto Rico, that it's imposing on the government, on communities? 
even if it hurts you in the long run, the way that it would hurt Les Salis? Or do you just swallow your pride and do you sort of say, well, we've got to find a way around this? Les Salis' friend, Gabriel Soto, says it's a difficult decision that's made even harder because these changes, they're being imposed by this outside board. I'll, I'll leave it there. So like that moment, right, where she's... Uh, that where she sort of pushes the money away was something that <clears throat> I just happened to sort of spot because I was sitting at this table with a group of her friends interviewing another one of her friends, um, and Lisa Lee and her friend were sitting on the other side, and I kind of saw through the side of my eye this guy pulling like $3 out of his pocket and slipping them aside and her pushing them back, and I was like, whoa, what's happening? Like, I stopped this interview, and I went and you know, refocused my attention on that, and I think that, I mean, it's a small thing, right? It's like a small very small moment that I thought was like so telling of the way that this young woman who had broken down about the fact that she was going to have to drop out of class was months away from graduating after having spent six years at the University of Puerto Rico. It was a very small moment in which she was sort of resisting and saying, no, I'm reclaiming like the control and the power here, right? Something that was going to be in, nobody was ever going to know that that had happened or know that that had been the thing that had influenced her, but herself was a way to sort of maintain a sense of dignity over these very often sort of humiliating um, sort of impositions that this postal oversight board is, is imposing on Puerto Rico, right? And actually that moment, I think, is one of my favorite moments I've ever kind of captured on, um, on, on tape um, uh, because it's a, subtle, it's a subtle thing that you can do, right, to kind of get across. Again, people here aren't completely helpless, right? People here are taking control in small ways. Even if she has no structural control. I mean, she's not changing anything, but she's sort of changing herself, right? <clears throat> right, so like in that first story, what we're trying to do, what I'm trying to do is like sort of avoid the sort of narrative of, 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 of helplessness, right? Of people just basically taking what's coming and not being able to control any aspect of the situation. Um, I think like another way that we can actually often strip people of, of, of that com of complexity and fuel these sort of ne negative stereotypes, especially about communities of color, is if we only focus on the ways that they're being, uh, they're trying to claim power or agency, right? And often this happens, I think this is true of, of reporting um, on black communities. And I've noticed it in a lot of the reporting <clears throat> I did sort of after, uh, around the Black Lives Movement, um, you know, Black Lives Matter protests and stuff. And so this was a story, um, I don't know if you remember this, this case of the University of Missouri. Uh, a few years ago when the student protesters succeeded in forcing the president of the university to resign after he had like mishandled a lot of um, the response to these racist in incidents on campus, including you know, like the painting of swastikas on student dorms and stuff like that. And so these students, they had uh, protested and convinced the, the, the university's football team to protest and refuse to play until this guy resigned, and he resigned. And this was a huge story because the University of Missouri is a major university system, and the football team is really important. And so one of the things that happened was that all of the media descended on the campus, right? And these students had, created, had formed this encampment in the quad, uh, and there had was this scuffle between a photographer, a student photographer, and the protesters, and they had told them, like, please keep away, like, this is a space where we're trying to maintain a sense of comfort and safety for black students who have felt very unsafe on campus over the last few days because there had been reports of the KKK sort of driving the streets at night, again, the swastikas, that sort of thing. Um, and so the story kind of shifted, like, half, like midway through the story, it was the story about these student protesters who'd succeeded in this remarkable feat, but ended up becoming, because reporters often feel very self-important about the sort of their role, 
um, a story about how look at these black protesters who are keeping the media out and not understanding that what we're trying to do is cover their movement and now they don't want us here, right? But, you know, again, journalists can, tend, can be sort of self-important around these things. I have mixed sort of feelings about student protesters trying to keep the media away. But I think like what wasn't happening is any sort of critical self-assessment on the part of the reporters to say like, okay, why are we being so in, in insisting on covering this in a certain way, and what might be sort of behind people's hesitance to let us in in this way, right? And so I was in LA, you know, at my desk at NPR West, and my editor said, "Can you go to Missouri?" And I said, "You know, like when?" And she said, "Now." And I said, okay, well, it's mid-November, like I don't have any winter clothes with me. Uh, she said, all right, like, get there and you know, go to the Walmart and buy something, you know. Uh, uh, and so that's a relevant story, a relevant detail for, uh, it will become relevant in, a, relevant in a second. So I went kind of dressed like this and it was fucking cold. I mean, like, you know, mid-November in, in Missouri. And um, so I got there and I had sort of already knew that it was gonna be a difficult story to report on because there was now this sort of antagonism between the protesters and the media. And so I somehow managed, and I don't remember how, to find some of the student leaders um, on Twitter of this protest movement. And I said, look, like I'm coming, I'm on my way, I'm about to get on the plane, I know that there's this issue going on with the press. Like I actually wanna hear that story and where that's coming from. And I wanna also know, like, and I, I wanna tell the story of how you succeeded in, telling, in doing this thing, right? And I was, luckily, like one of them responded and said, okay, well, we're on the quad when you land, come and join us. You know, I said, I'm on a tight deadline, this is for tomorrow afternoon. So I got there like around 10 at night and it was cold, it was cold. And I was on, a, on the quad like interviewing them and they had this huge encampment and they, were, they welcomed me sort of to the edge of the encampment and we talked for like an hour and a half. And you can hear in the tape like my words slurring because I was freezing and like no one offered me a blanket and there were blankets around, you know. Um, and, and the next day I put the story on and I kind of told the story of how, uh, of how the, this movement had succeeded through the, through the lens of the eyes of these students. Um, and I got a text message from, the, from one of the students who said, hey, like, one, thanks for coming and talking to us yesterday. I know, we know it was cold. Uh, but two, like, thank you for taking the time to, to tell that story because that hadn't been, that, that, that kind of perspective hadn't gotten out there yet. If you'd like, come later on today to the Black Student Center on campus because we have created this um, space where black students can just hang out, feel like they're in a more comfortable environment and and sort of outside of the gaze of the press. And if you want, like, we want to show you what's going on there. So I said, okay. So I went. And, and this was the story that aired the next, the next morning, I think, the next afternoon. One of the things that was happening, because uh, the, this narrative emerged about these difficult protesters, you know, it, it's a thing, you know, if you remember, I mean, there's not as much coverage of Black Lives Matter now, but, you know, a lot of the way that we were talking about, that the press was talking about, especially punditry was talking about the movement, was often, you know, these unreasonable sometimes uh, demands that black protesters were making, you know, uh, unreasonably angry, bordering on terroristic, right? Like fueling a lot of these stereotypes that we often hear about um, and internalize in very damaging negative ways about sort of black protest movements, about black people more broadly, right? Around aggressiveness, about anger, about being unreasonable. Um, and so that was, again, it was an undertone. It was a thing that could be felt even if it wasn't explicitly said. And that was what I was trying to avoid in this broader story. Um, what wasn't happening was we weren't looking at people's pain and the thing that was motivating this response to the press.
Police have accused three men of making anonymous threats against black students at the University of Missouri. That's where earlier this week the president resigned after protests. Although nothing happened after these threats, many of the university's black students got scared. Adrian Florido of NPR's Code Switch team reports on how they're doing. Shortly after the threats appeared online Tuesday evening, police said there was no threat to campus. But some students there said they recognized the language in one of those posts. Some of you are all right, it said. Don't go to campus tomorrow. It was almost identical to a message posted shortly before last month's community college shooting in Oregon. Black students on Mizzou's campus were scared Tuesday night. Some left their dorms to stay with friends. Senior Sean Adams offered rides to students too afraid to walk outside. I mean, that was my role, and I did that all the way up until like 1230 and I came back home and just uh, people came over and stayed in my place, so we just, just slept. Oh, but then I got a call. It was a friend, and they decided they had to do something more. They reached out to the Black Culture Center on campus and asked if they could create a hub where black students could come just to hang out, study, nap, and feel safe. On Wednesday afternoon, they invited me in. Students were eating donated snacks and doing homework. Some watched TV. Others were passed out on plush couches. Adams says the threats felt like a punch in the stomach. But at the same time, for that to keep us from doing certain things and, like, control us emotionally, we just couldn't let that, can't let that happen. I mean, a lot of people are scared, and that's what this environment is for, for reassurance, to build confidence, to make sure everybody knows they're not alone. Junior Whitney Thompson agrees with that. She says fear needs a breeding ground. But if you surround yourself with people who aren't afraid, eventually if you are afraid, um, that kind of dwindles down because it has no nowhere to feed off of and grow. Fear and how they handle it is something a lot of black students have talked about in the last couple of days. Most have said, although they're afraid, they feel they have to hide it. At the Black Culture Center, among other black students, they can let it out. Last night, several hundred students packed into a large meeting room. One stood up to speak. I don't know what to do. Like, I had a class at 9.30 in the morning. Why am, I, why am I scared to walk by myself at 9.30 in the morning? I know he's supposed to be strong. I know he's supposed to not let them see us sweat. But why am I scared at 9 o'clock in the morning? Another student walked over and embraced her. Grad student Ruben Falugi led the group in a decompression exercise. One, two, three. Inhale. <laughs> Randomly, throw out one adjective to describe how you feel. You don't have to raise your hand or anything. Just how you feel in this very moment. Tired, stressed, they yelled. But here's what happened next. The students, hundreds of them, they poured out of the Black Culture Center and onto the street. Then they marched to the main student center in the middle of campus. Inside, as other students studied nearby, they split into small groups and talked about how to deal with the stress of feeling unwelcome at their own school. Adrian Florido, NPR News, Columbia, Missouri. Right? So, like, power and pain, right? Pain and power. It's a much more complex story, and it's something that, I mean, I remember a lot of the responses I got to that story afterward were, like, from people who were like, oh, wow, like, all we'd seen was these, like, you know, protesters who were demanding these things, and we didn't know what was behind that, you know? And it made that story about like, why they might need space from the media a bit more complex. 
Um, so, okay, so another way, right, another way that we can often strip uh, communities of color of power and agency is by focusing after tragedies on the way that white people feel about these things. Um, and I think that that was something that has happened in a lot of these stories. I think like Minneapolis after Philando Castile was one of them. Um, and certainly Charlottesville after the um, white supremacists descended on that town was one of them. In part that was because, you know, Charlottesville is like a largely white liberal college town where people were shocked that this uh, these racists and white supremacists had descended on campus to protest the removal of this Confederate statue. Um, and so then what had happened was that uh, one of these guys had, you know, drove his car into the crowd and ran over a protester and killed her, a uh, white woman. And um, it was shocked, you know, the world and it shocked Charlottesville residents who see their town as the sort of progressive liberal um, sort of enclave in the middle of Virginia. And so a lot of the coverage after that story was um, focusing on white people, even though fundamentally this was a story about sort of violence, sort of psychological violence directed at black people. Um, and so I went for Code Switch uh, sort of kind of with this sort of in mind, right? Like looking at the coverage that was happening in those immediate couple of days and thinking about, okay, I'm going to talk to a lot of white people, but how do I sort of keep the power in, 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 um, in the hands of people of color? And so I got there, and sure enough, like I, you know, I had very little time to do this story. It was for the, I think I arrived on Monday, like morning, or like late Sunday night, and the, the podcast, this was for the podcast, publishes on Wednesday. And um, I had very little time to like do research, you know, to like find out who the like leaders were in different communities. Um, and I was like scrambling the entire time I was there. I, was, I reported for like a day and a half. Um, I failed to go and find like the black like sort of neighborhoods and stuff, um, in part because of the time. But I figured I was going to focus most of my reporting on, you know, like the the vigils and all that stuff. Um, and find people at these things. I, I hate vigils, actually, afterward. I hate reporting on vigils after these um, tragedies, that, these vigils that always happen, because the narratives there are always like these sort of kumbaya moments, right? They're sort of like ways where people are coming together, and public radio listeners and editors love like the kumbaya moments. Um, but they can often be like very harmful, uh, I think, sort of um, in terms of the way, the messages that they convey about people coming together being kind of like this false salve, you know, for our notions that, oh, look, like things are okay, when in reality they aren't. Um, so, so this is a story where I talked to a lot of white people but was trying to maintain some, some um, skepticism about, about making this a story about them. So uh, I'll play this. This is an idea I heard over and over from white folks I spoke with in the last couple of days. This disgust that such an explicit form of racist white supremacy had reared its head here in progressive Charlottesville. It's a good town. What, what happened yesterday is just, it's unreal. I can't believe it happened. This is out of something from a different century. I wish I could be black just to feel for one day what it feels like to be in Charlottesville for one day. 
That was Keith Patterson, Mary Goodrich, and Nina Knight. These folks, like so many I spoke with, felt a sense of responsibility to do something. Caroline Laco went to the Kessler press conference and was holding a sign. What does your sign say? It says Nazis go home. Her husband's sign said, just leave. When you turn on the news and you see all these stories from around the world saying this horrible violence in Charlottesville, all these racists attacking people, this is not what Charlottesville is. Charlottesville is about inclusiveness and trying to help each other. This feeling that it is an inclusive place is so strongly held in this liberal college town that the attack over the weekend felt like a harsh reality check. I think people are ashamed. Laura Goldblatt is a community organizer and a researcher at the University of Virginia. Charlottesville has a has a lot of um, farmers, has a lot of farming communities, and people who come from a long blue-collar history. And I think the fact that someone was killed when she was trying to put a stop to hate and racism makes them feel ashamed about the ways that that history is celebrated. Though Charlottesville today is a largely liberal town, It's also a kind of sprawling monument to Thomas Jefferson, who founded the University of Virginia, and whose slave plantation, Monticello, sits on a hill overlooking the city. In 1921, hood-wearing Klan members inaugurated their local chapter with a midnight ceremony at Jefferson's tomb. Over the next several years, the city erected several Confederate monuments, including the one to Robert E. Lee that the white nationalists were trying to defend last weekend. And at the time that they were put up, members of the Klan rallied around them during their dedication. There was a lot of celebration and fanfare. And so the statues and Thomas Jefferson are all kind of part of this ecosystem of a long history of white supremacy in this area. And the statues are a symbolic representation of that. So Goldblatt says it's no surprise that as Charlottesville has taken steps to take these statues down, the Klan and other white nationalists would come here to try to reclaim a past they feel is slipping away. On Sunday, dozens of people gathered at the downtown intersection where police say James Alex Fields rammed his car into the crowd. The mourners were remembering Heather Heyer, who was killed. Among them was Carol Carruthers Sims, the pastor of a nearby Episcopal church. And it's an all-white church, and um, the subject of race has just begun to come up there in discussions. Sims has lived in Charlottesville for most of her 79 years. And she says for all the talk about being inclusive, the reality in Charlottesville is more complicated. I think a lot of people, myself included, you're not in contact with the African Americans or the other groups. You're sort of off in your own white, you know, barricade, so to speak. So I think a lot of people just aren't aware and they have they go on with their life. But she says there is tension beneath the surface. There's a lot of racism in people's minds. And um, I think, you know, we can be pleasant. Hello, how are you? But I think underneath here in Charlottesville, there's still some prejudice there. Also at this vigil was a man named Derek. He asked me to use only his first name. Derek is black, a Charlottesville resident. As he looked at the crowd, he said he had mixed feelings. It's kind of hard to explain. a lot of the people that you see here, they, uh, they're here for the right reasons, but a lot of them don't really understand the perspective of, let's say, uh, a person of color, uh, how they uh, view um, the police department, uh, how they view things like um, access to housing, uh, 
basically being pulled over for no good reason. So while he said it was great to see so many people coming out to denounce white nationalists... This is easy, because it's something that everyone's for. But once this goes away, how we deal with our other race issues is going to be what really matters in the long run. And so it hadn't been, you know, like the first five minutes of this piece, you know, like there was this scene where, like, Kessler, this white supremacist who was like a leader of this movement then at that time, uh, you know, had like come out onto a podium to this lectern out in the public plaza to give a press conference, and all these like white people chased him away, you know, like they were like chanting him down, and they physically chased him away, and he had to leave, you know, to run behind a police barricade. So, right, like the whole buildup to the story was like all these like white allies who were, um, doing the right thing, you know, uh, you know, for what in the moment. Um, and then we hear this like black guy who's like, yeah, no, you know. Um, and I remember going to that vigil and sort of thinking like, first of all, like most of the people here are white. And I was looking for like, you know, I was looking for people of color and there was this guy standing at the edge, you know, kind of looking at the thing. And he was, and there was Derek. I was like, oh, that guy's going to have something to say, you know, because he's not even in the crowd. He's just like watching it from afar. And sure enough, right, like that was what was on his mind. Um, and, you know, there were all these lovely voices kind of up until that moment, and actually I think the most powerful voice in that piece uh, was his, because, um, because he was saying, wait a minute, this is not a story about white people, this is a story about black people. Um, it is a story about white people in some ways, um, but like, let's refocus this, recenter this on what's actually important, and that's what he did, right? Um, and, and it was sort of the way that in that moment of this being a story about this liberal white college town, I tried to re sort of refocus the narrative on, 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 on the real issues and giving, I think, Derek that sort of power, that, that moment of, I think it's a moment of power in that piece, um, I thought was really, um, really important. So, so I think maybe I'll end it there uh, and we can do questions for like 15, 20 minutes uh, if you've got any. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. So um, this is a question I've thought about a lot. When you go into communities of color, you have a different access because you're not white. Um, how do you think about the responsibility when sharing out those stories that you have because you have this different access? Ida B. Wells has talked about this a little bit, but I would love to hear your who, thoughts. Who has them, sorry? Ida B. Wells, oh, like okay. obviously not recently, but um, she talks about responsibility to communities that you cover. What are your thoughts on that? One of the things that is always so in is, is, is interesting to me is how open and eager and willing people are to 
talk and tell stories often, right? And just have like never actually been asked. Um, and 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 yet, you know, because a lot of, especially in communities of color, there are people who don't have as much access to media, as much experience talking to journalists in the press, and as much necessary sort of like often not as much experience with how that process works, um, there are a lot of ways that that is often exploited, right, by journalists who do sort of manage to gain access or to talk to people in some ways. Um, where you kind of go in and you have these interviews and then it's like, well, they said it, so I can put that on the air, you know? Um, and I'm the journalist and I'm just, I'm just reporting what someone said. Um, I think that like it's really important for me when I go into situations, especially if we're reporting on something sensitive, for example, if we're talking about people's legal status, um, um, uh, or people who might have other kind of sensitive issues that they're talking about, to be sort of very clear, first of all, before we start an interview, like, hey, here's who I am, here's the sort of story that I'm doing. Um, uh, you, thank you for sharing your story. You have a right to tell me whatever you'd like to, but also if there are any questions that I'm asking you that make you feel uncomfortable, like you don't have to answer them. And you know, I've come around to this also, this idea of the, two of the presenters um, on the first day uh, in the late night provocations we're talking about, which was like giving people a little bit more control over what they have said and freedom to sort of feel like they can call and say, hey, you know what, I thought about this. I'd rather not have that um, in my piece, in, the, in, the, in your piece. Um, I think, like in my early days as a reporter, I might not have given people that 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 um, that courtesy. But now I think it is I think it is important, and I am willing I am willing to do that generally. Um, and then just sort of reflecting that I mean, you know, representing people's stories. I mean, like everything that we do is sort of an edit editorial decision, right? Like nothing that we do is is objective necessarily, and everything in sometimes even subconscious ways sort of gets across, um, either sort of reinforces stereotypes or narratives or prejudices or cha challenges listeners to, or, or readers to, to challenge them or to kind of question them. Um, and so I'm always, trying to, I'm always trying to focus sort of the story that I'm telling on challenging those narratives. And if someone says something that I feel like is, is not, is not um, sort of, Conduce, it doesn't doesn't sort of propel that sort of aim forward, then I'll just leave it out, you know, because I'm not trying to like embarrass people. I'm not trying to make people sound, you know, stupid or prejudiced or racist or or you know, um, or uninformed or uneducated or whatever. I'm trying to make them sound like interesting, complex people that they are, and they might not just have an experience with sort of these broader institutions that often misrepresent them. So that's like a very broad, unspecific response to your question because I was like struggling to think of specific examples, but that's sort of the broader thinking. I'm struck that you are able to parachute in and cover and ask about really sensitive, hard topics in a way that elicits really thoughtful responses and some trust with people. And you've kind of answered that in this, your previous answer, but I'm just curious how you do that because you turn around things really fast and you do it really well. Um, how are you able? <laughs> it's just it's not what I think of as um, people jumping in from one of the coasts into a community like that. I mean, in sense, I mean, you know, it's like it's just time. You know, like if you got twenty four hours, I mean, it's not a lot of time, but 
it's time, you know? And so it's like spending an hour and a half freezing on a quad with students, you know, when you'd rather be in your hotel room, not because you're trying to sort of, you know, manipulate them into talking to you, but because you're sincerely, genuinely interested. I mean, reporting is a, voca a vocation, right? I mean, it's, and it also requires people with certain sensibilities who are gonna do it well. And if your goal is just to get something fast, then you can get something fast, but it's gonna be shit, you know? Um, and if your goal is to actually make genuine connections with people, then there are ways that you can do that quickly. Again, not because you're saying like, you're thinking like in the back of your mind. I mean, sure, there's a part of that. It's like, I wanna get good stuff. But if you aren't a person who genuinely cares about the people you're reporting on, then you probably shouldn't be doing the work, you know? Um, and I think people f sort of pick up on that and feel that and sense that. Like, I don't hold shit, I don't hold stuff back. You know, like if I'm emotional about something, I'll get emotional with people, you know? Like I've cried in the middle of interviews because people have talked about what they were going through. Um, and that draws people closer to you and makes them more willing to talk to you, you know? That vulnerability can be dangerous and you have to like later think, okay, you know, should I, I don't mean it for me, I mean for the source, you know, should I, um, uh, was that too much, you know? Is that just, uh, is that sort of gonna be, um, is it gonna make them look bad? Is it gonna make them look too weak? Is it gonna, you know what I mean? Like that sort of thing, because I'm always trying to sort of make sure that people are still maintaining power even in these vulnerable situations. Um, but I think fundamentally people pick up on when you've made a real connection with someone or when you sincerely care, right? You, like when you, you really care and you're gonna do justice to their story or treat it with sensitivity. Um, and that's just a dynamic that is, that's just a human dynamic, you know? Um, and so I, I try to be very human when I'm out there. Uh, and I'll be honest with white people, you know, like who I'm interviewing and being like, yo, like this is not a story about you. This is a story about black people, but I think having white perspectives is important. Uh, and just know that. And when you're honest with people, you know, because a lot of times like reporters come in and like, you know, you get the feeling that like, oh, like you're asking me this question, but you're really trying to get at this other thing. Or, you know, like you're not telling me anything about yourself. Like who did you vote for? You know, like, you know, who do you support? Like I have a sense, but you're acting like this sort of like blank slate. You know, you're, I'm not a blank slate. I have opinions, you know, I'm willing to share them with you. Um, uh, and I hope that you'll trust that as a reporter I am uh, uh, going to acknowledge my own biases coming into something, but because I'm a good journalist or try to be uh, um, uh, correct for them in the interest of fairness, you know, and be conscious of the way that they're influencing my perspective, perspective of what you're telling me. Hi. Um, thank you so much for this talk. I have kind of like a two-part question. So you talk a lot about like keeping the ball of power in the hands of people of color. And I wonder if there are a set of questions that you ask yourself as you're um, doing like pre-planning for a story or about to report on a story that you make sure that that story kind of moves in that direction. And then my second question is, as you're reporting or producing the story, how do you make sure, um, how do you keep yourself in check that it's still following through with that intention? I'm not that organized, you know, like, uh, I'm actually a mess, you know, uh, organizationally and um, often have no idea what I'm doing when I go into something, you know, um, and that's true, I'm not, I'm not just saying that, like, I'm actually, you can ask any of my editors, um, I'm pretty much a disaster. So no, I don't, like, I don't have a list of things that I go in with, I just go in knowing what I'm trying to feel, you know, like, what I'm trying to um, 
a lot of times, you know, like if you when, when you've interviewed people for long enough, you know, and you've read enough good reporting and you've listened to enough good reporting, you have this sort of innate sense, I think, or you develop it of like, what is that moment that makes you go, oh shit, you know, like that's not what I was expecting. Um, and sometimes it's just the slightest like sort of like, a, just like the slightest like tingling on your skin where you're like, oh, that made me feel something, you know? And you can refocus, you're like, oh wait, let's like go deeper in that direction. Um, uh, and this thing that I thought was the thing I was gonna focus on actually becomes this other thing. Um, and so I'm, the only thing I really go into interviews trying to get at, I'm trying to always get that feeling, you know? And if there's this thing that someone says where I'm like, I think that that might lead to some of that feeling, then I go in that, down that wormhole a little bit. And if it's not going anywhere, then I go back to where we were going. You know. Thanks for this. Um, so what I'd love to know is what are the steps that you take from going to go from a kind of complex issue that's being reported on into finding a nuanced character that both represents that but also perhaps like you know is a real person to themselves where are the places that you look who are the people that you talk to to find those people um and just what questions do you ask yourself to find your way there this notion that there's like structure to the things that i do <laughs> is really something like i'm trying to disabuse you all of right like it's um i'm not that organized but um i think right like i think because I've, there are much smarter people than me on my, on my team, uh, Code Switch, who th have thought for many more years than I have and read a lot longer and a lot more books than I have about race, right, um, and identity. Uh, and it was a thing that I was not at all well-versed in uh, before I joined the team um, and had, I think, much more sort of simplistic ways of thinking about the way that like we cover a topic like race right like a lot of race coverage in this country is is, is like it's it's reporting on race relations right it's reporting on like you know bad things happening to people of color at the hands of white people um, or tension or you know whatever uh, that becomes a very sort of simplistic narrative uh, that is uninteresting um, and so when I am thinking about going into a story like Charlottesville, where it's very easy to get sucked into that narrative, um, I'm thinking about what are the things that are making me, like, are just, like, making my antennas twitch, you know? Uh, what are the things that, like, I don't like about the way this has been covered, right? Like, what, what are the things that are making me angry or frustrated about, uh, about the simplicity of the storyline that's developing? Um, and then I think about how can we subvert that, right? Like, how can we turn that around? Um, and so, um, you know, I think in the case of, I think the case of Minneapolis and Philando Castile, or was it St. Paul, St. Paul, Minneapolis, Minneapolis, St. Paul, um, was, was sort of a good example of that, where when I, before I arrived there, it was, again, Minneapolis being this, like, largely white, progressive town, uh, city, um, where people were shocked to have seen this video of a police officer shooting this black man in his car and just this guy bleeding out on Facebook Live and dying. Uh, and it was like, how could that happen in our town? You know. Uh, and all these 
you know, white protesters coming out for the first time because they actually saw it. Um, and again, being the story of like the cop, the bad guy, the victim, the black guy, and the white allies coming out to, you know, stand up for their neighbors, you know. I was like, that's boring. You know, that's not an interesting story. What I did think was interesting and that I wanted to explore was um, how difficult, and this when I got there, I was like, okay, I don't want that to be the story, right? Like, what do I want to be the story? I don't know, but I know that I don't want it to be that. And during the course of my conversations with white people on the streets, it was clear that a lot of people had, like, had never protested before, you know? They'd never come out because they'd never felt motivated to, because they'd never seen it, and what it took for them to come out was to see it on camera. Um, and that was interesting to me. But because they'd never protested, they didn't know how to protest. Like, they didn't know what to do. Like, they didn't know, like, you know, what do we put on our signs? Like, how do we, you know, like, where do we stand? How do we chant? Like, you know, can we be in the front? Do we have to stand behind the black people? Like, you know, all, this, all these questions, right? And I remember there was a, there was a woman who, uh, like, illustrated this very well for me. I got great tape. And I was like, oh, this is, this, this is an interesting story, like white people not knowing how to protest, you know? Um, and I pitched it to my editors, and this was like, I did like three stories in like three days. And unfortunately, that, that, that was not, I was working with an editor who's no longer at NPR, and she wasn't interested, you know? Um, uh, I was like, what, are you crazy? Like, this is a really good story. They wanted me to do the church story, you know, like the Sunday church story. So I went and did the Sunday church story. And I was still like newer at NPR at that time, as so I didn't have like as much, I wasn't pushing as hard. Um, or realize that I could just say, like, I'm not doing that, I know, you know. Um, uh, but that's the sort of thing, right? It's like, I don't know. Like, I don't know when I get there. What it, I know what I don't want. And then I'm finding ways to do something else. Uh, the, this may not be uh, an appropriate question for this particular breakup, but it has to do with trauma. Uh, I, I have a good friend who suffers profound PTSD from his exposure to traumatic events. Fukushima in Japan, one of the East Asian hurricanes where there were many dead, uh, a, a deep story about political malfeasance in our province that led to profound persecution for him. And his trauma as a reporter being put into highly volatile situations, seeing a lot of death in Fukushima being exposed to very deep radiation without much protection at all, makes me wonder about reporters sent into highly traumatic situations and how much your organization or your show pays attention to the impact on the reporters themselves. I mean, this is not about people of color question. It's about the people such as yourself who are sent to very, very toxic situations. Yeah, I think it takes a toll on people and has taken a toll on me in some cases. I mean, you know, like, um, what was it, like, the Pulse nightclub massacre after <clears throat> in Orlando, was that was a hard one for me to report on, in part because it was, you know, like, you know, the, the, the again, the vigil, uh, I went to the vigil, and, um, and you know, they're reading off all the names, and all the names, like, you know, like, Rodriguez, uh, you know, like all these like last names or Latino last names that you're not used to like hearing as being the victims of the of these mass things. And something about that, something about that just felt different to me. You know, like it shouldn't. We're all human. 
and yet it did, like hearing last names that sounded like my own and like members of my family and my friends. Uh, and so that was that was hard. That was um, that was that was, that was tough. And I remember when I got back to DC. NPR is very good about this sort of thing, right? Like like okay, did it take a toll on you? Like what do you need? They have people who you can call and stuff like that. Um, you know, as a reporter, I mean, like I I tend to I I compartmentalize things, you know, in some ways, and you know, go to therapy and stuff. Um, um, but uh, you know, there, you know, there's no question. I have black colleagues who have had been affected like very heavily by going out and covering these Black Lives movement stories and the police, uh, the, the 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 police violence. Um, hasn't you know? I'm I think I'm still early enough in my career to where like the accumulated sort of trauma of it all I haven't really fully processed, and I think maybe I'm fine. You know. I think, you know, I, I don't, um, it's sort of, I sort of move, I sort of, yeah, I think you just learn to sort of move on. Um, maybe I'm wrong about that, I don't know. I don't like talking about myself. Uh, so I work at uh, CBC in, in Canada, and uh, I guess it's kind of similar to NPR in terms of public broadcasting, and um, I find that a lot of our content um, is is it gets catered towards a white audience? I would say is or is not is, uh -huh. um, and it's problematic. Um, and I I I, I really appreciate how you talk about uh, how you cover race openly. And, and um, I'm wondering um, whether the, your editorial structure is and leadership is is mostly white, and and how you deal with that, um, how you deal with the pushback if there is any with regard to how you cover these stories um, and whether they are kind of imposing that white lens on, on your stories and then you're kind of having to say, no, this is actually how we should be doing it, which it seems you are doing. Um, yeah, how do, like, how do you kind of go through that process and, and is it a daily struggle that you have to deal with? I mean, I'm lucky to have good editors. I mean, first of all, my team on Code Switch is, is a team of reporters and editors who understand this stuff, you know? Um, and and think that complex reporting on race is important, and and we've thought enough about it and done enough about it, of, of it where it's like okay, and we trust each other enough, you know. So my immediate team, I mean NPR's structure, yeah, is very white. Uh, there are a lot of frustrations associated with that. Um, we, I've spoken openly about that with with editors, and and you know you always have to make your case. Yeah, you have to have conversations with editors. And I think like, the, I mean, I'll use the example of the, of like of police shootings, right? You know, you know, police, police killings of black people. Um, you know, like a lot of times there, were, there would be these questions about how sending, and I'm not saying this is necessarily specific to NPR, I think this is true everywhere, but there are always sort of questions that linger in editors' minds about who they should send to cover these stories and in what way we should do them and whether sending like a black reporter, for example, might uh, influence uh, uh, the coverage in ways that might make veer it away from being our notions of objective or fair or whatever. Um, and that's a frustrating thing to have to deal with because you realize like that people don't understand how every position within that argument is an, uh, is in some ways a biased or influenced position, right? And so an editor of mine at, at Code Switch, who's no longer an editor, she would, she would, she, she once would, said that, you know, like, she would try to convince her 
white colleagues, tell them, say to them, like, look, like, let's say you're thinking about how we covered this story of this police shooting, and I am, um, I'm using a black reporter, using a white reporter, and you're like subconsciously thinking you're going to send a white reporter because it's going to be fairer. Um, you have to understand that, like, both of those, you know, the fact that I, as a as a black reporter or as a Latino reporter, have had a negative experience with the police, um, that is something that 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 uh, taints, I think, is maybe too strong a word, that, but it influences the way that I view the police. The fact that you have never had a bad experience with the police officer doesn't mean that you are an unbiased person when it comes to your views of police and how we should cover this stuff. It actually means that you are also biased in favor of police, uh, and that is something that you need to like sort of recognize that that lack of experience is not does not make you a blank slate. It actually biases you in this other way, in this different way, in the opposite direction. Uh, and so again, like the importance always, if you're a good editor, if you're a good reporter, is that you recognize your stance or your feelings about something, and yet acknowledge that your role is is not to necessarily. Um, it's, it's, your, your role is not to let you influence that in, this undo, in an undue way on your reporting, but you do have to recognize where you stand and try to and try to correct for it as much as possible in the interest of fairness, right? And that doesn't mean that one side of the story gets more more play than the other. I, in my opinion, some it it, it should, um, but that's sort of a way, like that's sort of a test, right? Like when you if you say to an editor, especially if you're talking about a white editor, like hey, look, like, just think about this moment for a moment. Just think about this for a moment. Let's like, do this exercise. The fact that I've had a bad experience with cops is, is, um, influences me in this other way. The fact that you haven't influences you in the other direction in terms of your biases. If they're like, accepting of that, right? if they're like, willing to acknowledge and realize, like, oh, whoa, you're right. I hadn't thought about that. Well, that's a good sign. Um, but if they aren't, then you're like, okay, then this is not going to work. You know, like this relationship, you know, editing, reporting relationship. Like, let's let's figure out another way. You know, this is a little bit of a follow up to what you were talking about. Um, you were talking about how much you dislike vigil coverage, and I'm the the piece that you did that aired on Code Switch, right, on the podcast. Um, I'm wondering if there is a conversation at the network, and full disclosure, I'm from one of the affiliates, um, uh, about that. Have you had conversations about the way the network is portraying its coverage of village? Uh, of like vigils the and vigils, aftermath yeah, and, stuff. and yeah. the aftermath. Not really. I mean, you know, not as far as I know. Um, those are those immediate. So look, like there's a need for. You know, we're also a news network, and so you're covering the news, you know, and like that's uh, those vigils are part of the story, and you go and you do the story of people mourning, you know. Um, and so I don't think we shouldn't cover vigils, right? But I think we should cover them in more, more complex ways and avoid, because a lot of times with those vigil stories, what ends up happening, um, and the vigil is just one example of this, of the, of the, of the space where this happens, <clears throat> is that, is, you know, we know how, how much radio editors and listeners love sort of that moment at the end of a story where you just feel better, you know? Um, and so there's these like happy moments, these moments of hope, you know, in the aftermath of tragedy. I hate that shit. Like I never do that um, because it leaves people uh, a little more complacent or feeling like they don't have to do anything, you know? Like I want people to feel uneasy at the end of pieces, you know, or feel like things aren't resolved. 
Um, and that's part of why I don't like vigils, um, uh, vigil stories. Um, and so uh, I don't think that there is like a broader conversation about this at NPR. This exercise of like t- giving this presentation is also the first time I've ever really had to, I've been forced to sit down and think sort of more structurally um, because I don't do structures <laughs> um, structurally about like the way that I approach this stuff. And so I think, yeah, that's a good conversation to have. Uh, and as I do continue to do more national desk or like you know news reporting, probably a conversation I'll have with editors. You know, NPR is such an unwieldy large place, and there are so many different desks, and like you know, coverage happens in all these different ways depending on who's on. You know, so it's just like you know, it's hard to wrangle ideas at NPR. Perfect. Well, can we have another round of applause? Thank you. Hi, thank you. Um, I have two questions, so I'll, I'll speed through them. One is, um, do you have any thoughts you can share about covering when folks have mixed or nuanced feelings? What are some questions you ask yourself to make sure that you're capturing even their own, like they're wor- often in the aftermath, people are working through how they feel about a thing, right? Um, so the first question is if you can speak to nuance. Um, the second question is, I'm making an assumption here, you, have, you speak Spanish? Yeah, Spanish is my first language. I'm Mexican, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, So do I, but I speak it with accented, you know, I'm Canadian. I I wonder how you're perceived in spaces with with other... Do you have an accent on your Spanish? Like, do you sound like you're fluent in both languages? Uh, Yeah, yeah, Spanish is my first language. I mean, you know, in, in, in Puerto Rico, I have a Mexican accent, and they know I'm not Puerto Rican, you know. Okay, so I just wonder about your own ambiguity as a reporter and how you're accepted in different... Latino spaces, yeah. Um, it's actually interesting because in Puerto Rico, I'll take that question first. In, in Puerto Rico, the <coughs> I I I'm just seen as Mexican because um, because because my accent is not from there. I tell them I'm Mexican. They're like, all right, you're Mexican. You know, in Mexico, um, my accent is not recognized as being fully from there. You know. Um, and and so, um, in Puerto Rico, which is the the, the Spanish speaking space where I've spent the most time over the last couple of years, um, I'm just seen as like another Latin American, and it's great. And Puerto Ricans are. Before I moved to Puerto Rico, I thought that Mexicans were like the most generous and embracing and kind um, Latin Americans, and um, Puerto Ricans are giving us a run for our money, you know. Um, uh, and I think that's probably well, there are so many like Mexican Puerto Rican couples because like oh yeah you're nice I'm nice like let's get together. Um, the first question was about uh, oh yeah nuance like how to get at that nuance in that in that immediate in that immediate aftermath. I mean honestly it's just it's like it's being I, I try to be as open about my own sort of emotions and feelings about these things as possible when I'm talking to people and sort of. I think a lot of times as reporters we go in and we try to be a bit distant um, and I don't do that. You know, like I will, if I feel emotional about something, I will not hold that back, you know. Um, I'll sit down and spend hours, you know, um, freezing. Um, not because I'm trying to manipulate someone to give me something. I think I'm sincerely and genuinely interested in having that experience with people. Um, and it's, once you sort of reach that level of comfort with someone that some of the more nuanced 
stuff comes out. And a lot of times people don't. I mean, <clears throat> the fact that people haven't fully processed something is, um, is often the source of a lot of nuance um, in ways that you, that you might not expect. And it's kind of, I mean, it's hard to pinpoint, it's hard to put your finger on when you know something has presented itself that it's going to be really powerful in the story. Um, but if you have that sense, you'll notice it, like you'll see it, you know. The last story I was going to play was one where the, the, the nuance progressed over time. It was a story about the death count in Puerto Rico. Uh, and so I was going to play two short pieces. One of them was about this shoe protest that happened a few months after the storm when this Harvard study came out that basically estimated like 4,600 deaths. Um, and people brought shoes to the steps of the Capitol, and it was this very emotional moment where people were finding, like, feeling that like this number was giving them something because the government had been had such a difficult had had resisted uh, acknowledging that people had died. Um, it felt like they weren't acknowledging people's pain, and that made it difficult for people who had lost loved ones to find both closure and to feel like the government cared at all about what had happened. Um, and in those sort of early days, when I did that first story, um, that was still very raw, and people weren't really sure how they felt. They were hurt, they were confused, they were sad. And then I was going to play a second uh, bit from the episode I did during the protests back in July when people exploded and were furious and took to the streets and demanded the governor's resignation in large part because of the jokes that they made in these private text messages about the, the death, the, the dead bodies that had piled up in the morgue, right? By that time, people had processed or were were further along in the way that they had processed their feelings about the deaths, right? Um, and were no longer really confused. They were now just furious, you know? Not just furious, but they were more furious than they had been before. Early on, it was pain, and then after they'd processed it, it became anger, and that was what drove hundreds of thousands of people out into the streets. Um, and that's sort of, again, one of the benefits of time, which is that you have, you know, the time to see how that stuff progresses. And it was one of the great privileges I've had um, <clears throat> in terms of being able to spend so much time in Puerto Rico to see that stuff. Hi. My question is about doing investigative stories uh, about poverty where you find workarounds and you find workarounds that are illegal. To what degree you would bring that to light? And specifically, I did a story about a woman who was homeless in San Francisco and then won the housing lottery. And the story was really about some of the injustices built into the lottery system, how difficult it was for them to actually get housed. And then subsequently, I found out that her and her husband had um, committed multiple welfare, welfare fraud, and there was other shady things that they were involved in. And so I was in a really difficult spot in that they were right about the injustices of the system, but there was other ways that they were abusing the very system that we were talking about. And so I'm wondering if you've run into those kind of things when you've looked deeper into uh, people who are in tough situations who in some ways ha maybe have to do things that are illegal, but also what's your responsibility as a journalist to give the full picture of their situation and who they are? Yeah, that's hard. I mean, I don't, you know, I think in that sort of situation, I would, there are a lot of people who probably fit sort of the profile you were looking for in that story. And so, you know, a lot of times, like in a situation like that, I think you have to think about what are the potentially negative consequences, not only for um, for the for the family itself, but for the for the broader story you're trying to tell 
Um, and if you can find someone who doesn't have those other red flags, it probably is better, right? Because you don't put at risk sort of like the veracity of the claims you're trying to make in the story. Um, I've never had a situation like that, but I've had colleagues who did, you know, where they were trying to, they were reporting on a sensitive situation. It might have been immigration too, and they're in sort of backgrounding someone found sort of things that maybe were, didn't make them the ideal candidate for the story. Um, I think that's probably the best answer I can give you. I'm not sure, sorry. I'm curious about how you manage uh, in dealing with, especially people who've just dealt with a, a disaster or something really intense and traumatic, uh, how you avoid or how you manage the aspect of re-traumatizing them by asking them about a piece of their lives, the worst day of their lives, and also are there special protocols or things that you do uh, in order to make sure a story has meaning to them, uh, especially lots of communities, say like Post Maria, Post Harvey, that aren't going to have necessarily like access to getting hearing the story or reading the story or experiencing it in the way that like a community, if you you know, that's stable, you can send a link out to them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I always, I always sit down. I mean, I always, before I start an interview, especially if we're talking about something traumatic, I did this a lot in Puerto Rico when I was doing some stories on the death count, um, was just be very clear and explain exactly sort of who I am, what I'm doing. Um, you know, if I'm sitting in their living room, at that point they have, they're, they're, they're open to the conversation, you know. Um, but I sort of reiterate that this is not something that they have to do, you know. Um, and why I want to do the story. I mean, the reason I want to do the story is, and, you know, in, in that, in like, in a situation like that, like the death count, like people want to talk, people want to tell their stories because they feel like it's a way to keep often like the memories and the stories of their loved ones alive um, to get them some kind of recognition that their own government wasn't willing to give them, you know. Um, but but I, I think, you know, things like what one of the presenters yesterday was saying, you know, like if you say something, you decide you don't want me to use it after all, you can take it back, you know, um, and you can call me later um, and 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 tell me that you've had second thoughts. Or if they've said something that I think might be kind of like a little too sensitive, saying, hey, is it OK if I are you sure it's OK if I use this? You know, and I do that all the time. Um, but I think that by the time that we have gotten to the point where they're willing to talk to me, I mean, things are pretty much OK. But I think that taking those steps is, 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 is really important. I mean, in terms of re-traumatizing people, um, I mean, that shit's traumatic, you know? Um, and so often I think people are willing to sort of work through that pain to tell the story. But I'm going to keep giving that some thought, too. And, and this stuff, like this, you know, like in Spanish we say, como que esta es una propuesta, no? Which is like, this is a, it's not, it doesn't have a great English sort of translation, but it's sort of like, my proposal, right? Like these are the things that I am suggesting and proposing, but like that's all open for debate. It's not a science. It's, you know, it's more of an art than anything else. And you kind of just feel your way through some of this stuff. Um, I was wondering, uh, I do a lot of reporting in rural areas that are predominantly white, you know, parts of Colorado, North Carolina. Um, and I'm wondering what you do when you have this like fabulous tape and the sentiment is so great but you can tell that the way that this person has phrased something, maybe the, the language they're using, the grammar they're using, is going to make them look vulnerable to other people. 
you know, and I, I don't know, like, I, I think about uh, the TV station when I lived in North Carolina, they always have some guy saying, oh, yeah, that guy ran out of prison with his orange prison britches. And it's like you, you wonder where the line of showing people who they are without exploiting them or making people... I, I get worried they're going to get made fun of, you know? And what, I'm not quite sure I understand. So when you say, like, uh, without making them feel vulnerable, what do, you, what do you mean? I don't mean... I mean, leaving them open to... making them vulnerable to being judged by others because the type of language they're using or the, the ideas they're expressing... Um, when you come into an area, like a flood has happened or something, you interview somebody, and their feelings are so, um, make great tape, but the language they're using might make p- other people listening judge them. What do you do with that? Uh, yeah, I don't, I, don't really, I don't really worry about that too much. I mean, I don't, I don't know that I've had situations where I've felt like, I'm trying to think if anything like that has ever happened where I've felt like, oh, this person's going to be judged for saying that, or saying that this way. Um, I mean, it's who, they, it's, it's who they are, you know? I also have two questions. My first question is, it seems that you're obviously thinking about the complexities of the story and, and the sources and how, you know, you're thinking a little bit deeper when you're interviewing people, and especially in these difficult situations. Have you encountered um, listening to other stories from your colleagues and maybe sometimes even having these conversations with your editors about you know, maybe that story could have gone a little bit deeper or could have been differently with a different angle. And do you voice those opinions? And then my second question is, I mean, you're going to all of these places that there's tragedies, and um, how do you take care of yourself if they're sending you in there? So the first question, I mean, always I listen to hear stories on the radio. I'm like, God, what the hell was that, you know? It's like, no. Uh, You know, and uh, sometimes they're colleagues and sometimes they're friends, you know, and so... If they're friends, then I will sometimes talk to people, you know, one-on-one. Um, and if they're not friends, um, then I'll just I'll kind of keep it to myself or talk to some of my other, some of my other POC colleagues about stuff every day. Um, in terms of, uh, what was the second question? Oh, caring for yourself. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, some are harder than others, you know. Uh, so Pulse, you know, in Orlando was really difficult in part because, you know, I remember standing at the memorial, the vigil, uh, after the thing, after the tragedy and, you know, they're reading off 50 some names of, of people who'd been killed in the nightclub and they were all, you know, like, like Latino last names, you know, and it shouldn't feel worse. It shouldn't hurt more. Um, but there's really something about hearing names that, 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 that are part of that come from your community that, that that sort of makes that makes it sting deeper, you know. And I remember that being a very emotional story to cover. Um, um, and part of that was just going home and just like taking a couple of days off and like sort of you know sort of re- recharging a little bit. The thing that happened in, in in Puerto Rico was that I was interviewing people in these tough situations like all the time, all the time, and that was definitely like you know sort of building up. But then there was this like beautiful explosion back in July, right? Where it felt like that was all just that was like this huge therapy session for everyone. I think including journalists who've been covering the situations in Puerto Rico for years, which is like, oh, people are standing up. Like, what an amazing way to sort of um, to um, desahogo. How do you say that? Anyone desahogo? What was that? Like a release? Yeah, like a release. You know? Um, well, that was that was really that was nice, uh, and. 
you know, I may or may not have had opinions about whether the governor should resign, but when he did resign and everyone was like, felt like they'd re achieved their goals, it was like uh, the most therapeutic release you could imagine. Um, uh, and I'm actually coming to, like I am, I've, this year has actually been difficult on a personal level for a lot of, a lot of reasons, a lot of it being kind of what you're talking about. And I had never, I've always been like a very stable person, kind of low-key, uh, easygoing, down-to-earth. Uh, and 2019, I think a lot of this stuff was starting to build up. And so, you know, got good insurance, covers therapy. Uh, I, have, I did some of that this year. Um, um, I won't, I won't bore you with all the details, but no, I mean, it's, you know, and it's like, look, a lot of it is that we just keep going, you just keep going, you just keep going, you know, and I've never, again, never really thought about how you, it's like, oh, let's stop and think about how this is affecting you on a personal level, and that's something I'm just beginning to do, to do now, so enough about me. Hi. Uh, a few years ago, Nicole Hannah-Jones was here, and she gave a panel, um, on a long form piece that she had done about school segregation, you know, modern school segregation, what that looks like. And her reporting, as you know, is it's pretty bleak. And she said at the end of that panel, oh yeah, I don't do happy endings, I don't do hope, because it makes people complacent. And it makes people think, ah, they got this, you know, like I don't have to, like it, I want the, to leave them enraged. Um, and I was wondering, when you report on really difficult, traumatic things or systemic ills, and you want to bring in, you know, things like people's resiliency or, or, or hope to sort of introduce that complexity of their character, do you, how do you balance that out with not letting the listener off mm. the hook? Yeah, I try never to end a story with, with hope. Uh, if there is sort of hope or, you know, power or, you know, or sort of resilience, I don't really like the word resilience in, within the Puerto Rico context for reasons that I, too long to explain now, but I will put that in the story, you know, I'll try to put that sort of within, um, but any kind of like hopeful note in a situation where I know that it's actually much more complicated than that, I, t I will tend not to. And in public radio, I mean, like, if you listen to enough public radio, you know that that's a thing that we love to do, right? Like, end a story with, like, that little bit of joy at the end, that little, like, nugget that makes the listener feel, like, a little bit better, you know? Like, okay, I can rest easy knowing that I don't have to worry about this anymore, you know? And, I like, I never do that. I try not. I try never to do that, you know? I try never to do that. Um, it's one of my least favorite things about public radio, um, and so I agree with, with, with Nicole completely, 100% on that. So you talked about, you spoke about the different places that you've been, um, Houston, you were up in Missouri. For you, that you were like in LA and then suddenly you had to go to Missouri. How do you make sure that you're staying true to like that area? Like when you're like essentially just like... Par like not, I know parachuting is like a dirty word, like for what we for what we do, but making and especially that you were talking about that quick turnaround, and then being able to have the time to really talk to people and get those nuanced questions and really get to the heart of those things. So balance, like, so I know it's like probably like a two parter, one traveling to these different places and like getting a sense of the place when you're kind of very restricted for time and then also getting to the heart and the essence of the issue when you're restricted, when you have all those time constraints. Yeah, parachuting is a huge, I mean, we, I parachute in all the time, I mean, you know, 
uh, I often, you, a lot of times you don't know what you don't know <clears throat> until much later, you know? Um, and I know that was true of Puerto Rico, which was I showed up on October 10th of 2017, having never been there. It was three weeks after the storm, and I knew nothing. I mean, I knew nothing about Puerto Rico at all, other than U.S. territory, Puerto Rican, half Iranian, you know, like. Um, uh, and so I knew a few things kind of through conversations with her. Um, and, <clears throat> and, you know, in the aftermath of these tragedies, like, like a hurricane, for example, a lot of what you're focusing on is the immediacy of people's needs, right? So, like, you know, the fact that there's no water, the fact that there's no electricity. And in certain ways, those are just facts that you can report, you know? And so you're not really, the, the political context or the social context isn't as important in that moment, right? Um, it becomes important a lot later on as you're doing sort of deeper pieces or pieces that are second or third day or fourth day or fourth week or fourth month. Um, and in the case of Puerto Rico, at least, I mean, you know, I, I was on a panel in Puerto Rico a few maybe about a year ago. It was actually the first anniversary of the hurricane. And some local journalists invited me onto a panel to be like the voice of international coverage. They asked a similar question, you know. Um, and I said, well, look, like when I got here after, after the hurricane, I knew nothing. I, d I knew nothing about Puerto Rico. I didn't know anything at all. I didn't realize what a complex place this was politically. It's one of the most complex places I've ever been, you know, um, politically, socially, in terms of identity. And now I've been here, what, like a year? At that point, it had been a year. And I said, you know, I feel like I know a lot more now. I know a lot more, but I understand a lot less, you know. Um, and I said, oh, that means, you're, that means you're Puerto Rican now, yeah. Um, uh, and, and, and in some ways, I mean, I think you have to go in just knowing, knowing that you don't know anything, you know, and like being as humble uh, and open-minded as possible, especially to the people who are locals who know a lot more than you do. Um, uh, and as much time as you can spend there, it's just sort of like boning up on sort of local history, local politics, like social issues, talking to people who know, um, you know, that's the best way to go about it. But I don't think there's no like magic formula. I know I get shit wrong all the time because, because I'm gonna be in a place for three or four days, you know? Luckily, because I've spent almost all of my time over the last two years in Puerto Rico, that hasn't been an issue for me anymore. But there's still all kinds of stuff I don't know about Puerto Rico, you know? Um, uh, but I think humility, I mean, I think sort of humility as a reporter is, you know, because there's so many reporters who just sort of kind of, just like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm a reporter. Talk to me, tell me what I need to know, you know. It was what happened in Mizzou. Um, sort of being self-critical and self-aware about the stuff you don't know it goes a long way in helping people who know more than you be willing to open up and say, okay, you, you're interested in getting it right, you know. Hey, um, so this is something that's sort of been weighing on me for a little while. Um, when covering something really traumatic for someone, you're like asking them to relive their trauma for you. And then the story gets published, it airs, and then um, I don't really know what happens to that person afterwards. Like I end up moving on to another story and then a year goes by and I like remember that I covered this thing um, and they're sort of lost to me. Um, how do you cover like, how do you grapple with that and what the responsibility is of us journalists to follow up with the people that we've asked um, and they graciously provided um, their, like, testimony? Yeah. I mean, I always make sure that people have my phone number and my email address and can call and text anytime if they're interested. And that's happened a lot. It happened a lot in Puerto Rico. It's happened 
with a lot of these stories actually, um, and being completely open to taking you know phone calls and emails and texts or whatever. Um, especially if they're these sort of more dramatic stories, I I I follow up with people, I friend people on Facebook, you know, um, uh, you know, like I add them on WhatsApp, so you can see when they like change their little profile pictures and stuff, like just little ways, you know, they can see yours. Um, um, and I go visit, you know, I go visit people. I've, I'm working on a story now about um, cockfighting. Uh, my editor on that story is in the room. Uh, and, um, you know, this is reporting I did, I've done over the course of a few months. And, you know, this, the story is still not out, unfortunately. And um, it is in Puerto Rico also. Um, and, you know, I'm going to be there next week and I'm going to go visit this guy in the mountains and take him up. A digital story has published, but not the the audio version. Um, and take him a copy of the portrait and framed to say, like, you know, thank you for talking to me and um, and being willing to tell me about how you're probably going to have to pack up your life and move to the states and leave your kids behind. You know, um, there's no you can't keep in touch with everyone. You know, like you just can't. Um, but you can give people your contact info and make sure they can stay in touch with you if they want to. And then be willing to follow up on that stuff. And I've dropped the ball on that stuff too. You know, there was a woman who emailed me or called me a few months ago who I'd, I'd, I'd profiled her, her, her and her family's like struggle to get busing to a school um, after the Puerto Rican government closed a bunch of schools. Um, and she called me and I told her I was going to get back to her and I forgot to, you know, and you're just reminding me now. Um, so that's what I'm going to do when this session is over. 